Dr. James Dobson likes to tell the story of a young boy named Robert. Robert was an undisciplined terror whenever he came to the doctor's office. When it was his time for an appointment, the nurses would warn each other, Robert is coming. When Robert came, he would tear out the magazines from their holders. He would throw trash all over the waiting floor. And he would wreak havoc throughout the clinic. If the office staff corrected him in any way, he would bite, he would kick, he would scream his way back to his seat. During one of his examinations, his pediatrician, Dr. William Schlonecker from California, noticed that Robert had a few cavities. It was an observation that presented the doctor with a real professional dilemma. To what dentist would he refer this terror of a boy? A doctor came to mind who had a great rapport with children, and so he made the referral. Young Robert saw his trip to the dentist as a new and exciting challenge in the ongoing battle of wills. As he was ushered into the examination room, he announced to the dentist that he had no intention of getting to the chair. I will not sit down. Now, Robert, the old dentist replied, I'm not going to force you, but I want you to climb up into that chair. Robert bowed his little head and screamed in refusal. The dentist patiently explained that, Robert, you must sit in that chair so that your teeth can be fixed. Again, Robert refused loudly once again. As the dentist moved towards him as if to pick him up and put him in the seat, Robert played what he was certain was the trump card. He told the dentist, if you come over here and try to make me sit down, I'm going to take off all of my clothes. Calmly, the wise old dentist said, fine, son, you go right ahead. Robert slowly removed his shoes and shirt and and stood there defiantly, staring into the eyes of the dentist. The dentist did not back down, and Robert also could not back down. And so he continued removing his clothing until he stood there just as naked as the day he was born. Now, Robert, said the dentist, you climb up onto that chair yourself. And a very naked and very surprised 10-year-old terror climbed into that chair and sat motionless as his teeth was filled. No crying, no screaming, no hitting, no slapping. When the dentist was finished, Robert climbed down and asked for his clothes. No, son, the good doctor replied, I'm going to keep your clothes overnight. Tell your mother she can come by tomorrow to pick them up. So a bested Robert walked out into the waiting room naked. His mother took him by the hand, led him down the hall and out into the parking lot to their car. The next morning, Robert's mother returned to the office for her son's clothes and asked to speak to the conquering dentist. When he came out, she said, Doc, I just want to thank you for what you did to Robert yesterday. Since he was a very young man, ever since he was very young, he has threatened us with a whole host of things if he did not get his way. And we never called his bluff. But since you did... He's been a very different child ever since.
Oftentimes as Christians, we dare God to call our bluff. We as Christians speak, say, act, acknowledge that we are Christians. And yet in our heart of hearts, we are not living it out. And we dare God, God, call our bluff. You will be embarrassed. We will not be. And yet there will come a time when God will call our bluff. And he will expose us for the reality of who we are. As we continue our study in the book of Daniel, we want to take a look at four areas of our lives where we often dare God to call us on our bluff. Four areas of our lives we need to be very aware of. Or else it is what we take pride in. Because somehow we think that if God were to expose us, He would be the one who is embarrassed. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 5, as we look at verses 1 to verse 31. As you're turning to Daniel, chapter 5, let me give you a bit of a historical background. King Nebuchadnezzar, by this time, had died. He died in 562 B.C., having ruled for 43 years. After he died, there was much political intrigue in the courts of the Babylonian courts. There was murder, the murdering of Nebuchadnezzar's son, the murder of grandchildren, a general deterioration of the glory that was Babylon. After about 12 years, it all ironed itself out. And Nabonidus, who was married to the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, became king. And Nabonidus ruled from 556 to 539 B.C. And this son-in-law of King Nebuchadnezzar restored glory to his kingdom. Nabonidus' mother was a high priestess of the moon god at Haran. And so he brought back the Babylonian religion and restored many of the abandoned temples. King Nabonidus was absent often from Babylon on his conquest, and he didn't like to live in Babylon, and so he would often live in his conquered lands. And for 10 years, from 554 to 545 BC, history tells us that he was living in the conquered parts of Arabia. And so he appointed his eldest son, Belshazzar, and appointed him as co-regent, co-ruler with him. And therefore, he could go on his conquest and live in his conquered lands while someone would govern and rule over Babylon. And that is why Belshazzar is called king, even though technically Nabonidus held the throne. And with this background, we begin with Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. Look with me. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver and vessels which his father, his ancestor, really his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lord, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lord and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the god, gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. 
King Belshazzar throws a huge party. It's almost like a frat party for all of his thousand most trusted friends, his nobles. Now you say, there's nothing wrong with throwing such a grandiose party for such a mighty kingdom. But let me tell you what is going on at this time historically. Herodotus, the historian, tells us that while he's having this party, the main Persian army is encamped around the city of Babylon and they are laying siege to this city. He is surrounded by hundreds of thousands of men bent on destroying the Babylonian kingdom. And here, this clown prince, Belshazzar, is throwing a party. But he is so prideful, and he's so assured that no one will be able to take this city. Because historically, no one has ever conquered the walls of Babylon. Walls that were so thick, you could run chariot races along the outer rim of the wall. A city that was so fortified, the great mighty river Euphrates ran right through the city and had a natural boundary against enemies. Herodotus also tells us, in preparation for the siege, the Babylonians had collected, collected enough food to outlast the siege for 20 years. Belshazzar, he thought, had nothing to be afraid of. In fact, the very name Belshazzar means Bel has protected the king. Bel is another name for the Babylonian god Marduk. My false god protects me. And he was so assured as hundreds of thousands of Persians encamped around the city, I'm going to throw a party. And as he's throwing his party and perhaps a little bit drunk, he asks his servants to go to the treasury and get the sacred temple items that God had sanctified for his use in Solomon's temple that King Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had stolen, had taken from the temple. You see, his father, Nabonidus, had, had come back to strengthen the Babylonian religion in perhaps an utter disrespect of God's sacred things and perhaps also to undo the influence of his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar's honoring of the God of Israel, he said, let me show you how powerful I am. Let me show you that my God is great, Bel, Marduk. And let me show you how, how inconsequential the true God of Israel, Yahweh, is. And so he said, go bring out the treasury items. And we're going to drink wine. We're going to have a, a debaucherous time of partying. Well, guess what? Someone's going to crash the party. Look at verse 5 to verse 6. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, verse 6. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked together against each other. Verse 5 tells us a hand appears out of nowhere, and a heavenly hand, you can call it. And it begins to write on the plaster of the wall in that great hall. Four words. And for whatever reason, even though he could not comprehend it, King Belshazzar was absolutely terrified of what was written. He was terrified. There was impending doom in these four words, and he could feel it. 
And he sobered up quickly. Verse 6, the Bible tells us as he got up to, to read those words, he trembled and he, he fell down. His knees buckled. That's where we get the English idiom, the writing is on the wall. When we say the writing is on the wall, we refer to something of impending doom. It's there, it's going to happen, and only a fool can't figure that out. Well, this fool didn't get it. In verse 7 to 9, the Bible tells us Belshazzar calls all of his astrologers and fortune tellers, come, come and read for me these four words and give me its interpretation. But none of them could read the writing on the wall. He said, I will offer to whomever can read and interpret these words for me, majesty and glory, and I will make him the third highest ranking man in the Babylonian empire. This shows the historical accuracy of the Bible. Because that was the highest rank he could give someone. Nabonidus was number one, his father. He was the co-regent, he was number two. And therefore the highest position he could give was number three. I will make whoever can read and interpret for me these four words, the third highest position in the kingdom. In verses 10 to 16, the Bible tells us the queen came in. Now, we don't have the exact name of the queen. Most likely, this is the queen mother, whether the wife of Nebuchadnezzar or one of his daughters, someone who had been in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. The queen walks in. And he tells Belshazzar, she tells Belshazzar, Belshazzar, there is a man by the name of Daniel in whom the spirit of the holy God is with him. And he was able to tell your grandfather of the interpretation of visions accurately. We don't know where Daniel is at this time. Perhaps he's retired. Perhaps with a change of administration, King Nabonidus and King Belshazzar decides to find his own prime minister or his own royal council. And so they bring Daniel in, and the Bible tells us that King Belshazzar says, Daniel, if you can interpret this for me, I will bestow upon you honor, and I'm going to make you the third in command in the kingdom. Look at the response of Daniel in verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel flatly tells the king, I don't need your things. I don't want your things. It is consistent with his character that we have studied since chapter 1 of the book of Daniel. A man of integrity, a man of character, a man whose interpretation and words cannot be bought. I don't need your things, king, but I will tell you what God is saying to you. Now, before he tells the king the interpretation, in verses 18 to 21, Daniel, a fearless man, will rebuke the king. In verses 18 to 21, Daniel reminds King Belshazzar, Remember your grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember how God humbled him, which we talked about this last week. How God brought him from a position of pride to a position of humility. How God changed him from a man full of pride into a humble animal until he was able to acknowledge the sovereignty and the power of the one true God. Daniel said, King Belshazzar, remember your grandfather and remember the lesson that God taught him. Now in verses 22 to 23, Daniel will speak truth into the life 
of King Belshazzar. And God will use Daniel to condemn four areas of Belshazzar's life and why he is doing what he is doing now. He's going to call Belshazzar's bluff. He says, Belshazzar, you think you're so great. You think you're so prideful. You think nothing can conquer the city of Babylon. Let me tell you why I'm about to do what I'm going to do. Four condemnations in verse 22 to verses 23. Verse 22, condemnation number one, if you're taking notes. Verse 22 of Daniel chapter 5. Daniel says to Belshazzar, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Condemnation number one. You knew, but did not act. Condemnation number one. You knew, but you did not act. Daniel told Belshazzar, you know the story of your grandfather. Maybe not all of the public knows the story, but you and the royal household know about how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, Belshazzar, you dare to challenge God. You dare to come against God. You dare to take action against God. Belshazzar, you knew, and yet you did not act. Condemnation number one. My friends, in our Christian walk, this can often be a condemnation in our life as well. In the Christian walk, we know how we're supposed to act. We have the Word of God which tells us. We know many things, but we do not do. We call these sins of omission. Perhaps it's because it's too hard. Perhaps we think that God doesn't care. Perhaps we think it's going to take too much of our time. Whatever the case, we are also condemned if we know but do not do. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, tells the story of her brother, Thomas Howard. Young Thomas liked to play with his toys, but his mother often reminded Thomas, Thomas, after you play with them, make sure you put all the toys in the toy chest. You've got to clean things up. One day as she walked into the kitchen, she found that all of the toys were strewn all over the floor. And so she went to look for her young Tom. And she found Thomas next to his father who was playing the piano and he was singing hymns and glorifying God. When confronted by his mother that he did not clean up the toys, he reprotested and said, Mom, I want to sing and I'm glorifying God. His very wise father jumped in and said, Young Thomas, it is no good singing God's praise if you are disobedient. It is no good to sing God's praises if you are disobedient. You know what you're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to do. And yet when we live in disobedience, when we do not act, then what use it is, it is to praise God. It's a hollow praise. God does not desire outward praise when the inward heart is rebellious. You know what you're supposed to do, but you don't do it. And a lot of us live lives like that. And we challenge God. Expose us, God. Fine, expose us. You'll be the one who's embarrassed. We'll get there. And God will expose us, but it's not Him 
who will be embarrassed. Look at verse 23. And you have lifted up yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. Condemnation number two. You disrespect the things of God. You dishonor, you disrespect the things of God. You take the things that God has sanctified, that God has set apart for His purpose and His use, and you have used it for your own personal gain. You have taken what God has set aside that is sanctified to Him for His use, and you have used it for your own personal use and debaucherous gain. I condemn you before you disrespect the things of God. In our own Christian walk, let me challenge us as well. Do we disrespect and dishonor the things of God? Do we dishonor His work, His workers, His servants, the house of God, anything that has been set apart for Him? Do we dishonor the time that is to be set aside for the worship of Him? Do we take with great care the things that are sanctified for the use of the Lord? Or do we take it for granted? What is our attitude as it relates to the spiritual things? What is our attitude with, which relates to our worship of Him? You see, in the Old Testament, God really wanted to teach His children, His Israelites, how to worship. He wanted them to draw near to worship Him as He has blessed them and had been merciful to them. But in their coming in fellowship with Him, God says there is a proper decorum. There is a proper respect. There is a proper way to do things. And when He instructed the building of the Ark of the Covenant, where the very presence of the Shekinah glory of God would reside in the mercy seat between the two cherubims, He said, if anyone touches the Ark of the Covenant he or she will surely die. Because a holy God who experiences worship by His people is a God who must keep His holiness pure. There was an incident in Second Samuel chapter 6. In Second Samuel chapter 6, they are bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But they are doing it improperly. They should have had the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. But instead, they put it on an ox cart and let the ox carry it to Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that the ox seemed to stumble and the cart seemed to fall. And a man with a very good heart by the name of Uzzah reached out his hand as if to, to, to catch the falling ark. He had very good intentions. But the Bible says when he touched the ark... He was struck dead. And when I read that, when you read that, you say, whoa, hang on there. That doesn't seem very fair. Uzzah is helping this precious Ark of the Covenant from falling. Why did God strike him dead? But the reality is this. God is a holy God. God doesn't need our help. But God has set rules of how we are to respect the things that are set apart for him. And yes, Uzzah had a very good heart to try to prevent the ark from falling. And yet when he reached out and touched the ark, God said, you have violated the space 
that I had set, and you must die. It's a harsh reality of a very present truth. Our God is a very gracious, merciful, loving God, but He is a God of righteousness, and He is a God of holiness, and He expects that we respect Him, and we respect His work, and we respect that which has been consecrated for His use. And so it is a challenge to us What is our view of worship? What is our view of church? What is our view of the time given to God? Whether or not I realize today was a unique day. But you know I've said it before. It's between you and God, but, but your punctuality, your attire, how you take God seriously is between you and Him. But it is a sign of how you respect the worship of God. Belshazzar was condemned because he disrespected the things of God. Even though they were looted from Solomon's temple. But yet he said, you know what? I need these golden objects so I can drink wine from it. And he was going to show just how powerful he was against the God of Israel. Be careful, my friends. Do not disrespect the things of God keep proper honor and decorum to the one who deserves it. Look at the second part of verse 23. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. Condemnation number three, you worship idols. You worship idols. You worship things that are inanimate. You worship things that don't move. You worship things that don't have power. You shame the name of the Lord when you worship a piece of wood and a piece of ivory. Therefore, you are condemned, Belshazzar, because you adore idols. You may say, I don't have these figurines in my home. I don't worship idols. But in our Christian walk, my friends, we put up every idols, many idols in our lives. We worship the God of computer. We spend more time on that thing than we do in the Word of God. There is not yet happy balance. An idol is anything that diverts our attention away from the worship of God. An idol is anything that we put before in place of God, in place of worshiping Him. We can worship the idol of friendships. For friends are more important than our relationship with God. We can put up the idols of family. We can put up the idols of our fashion, our clothes. We can put up the idol of our job. We can put up the idol of our prestige. Anything which diverts our attention and is put in place from us truly worshiping God is an idol in our life. And it is a condemnation. You worship idols. You can worship the idol of parties. And we have a lot of parties in this Christmas time. Lots of them. And a lot of us will say, well, you know what? I'm going to skip church this week because I've got a party and I've got to make my 12 o'clock appointment. God, we often say, God will understand. I'm only missing one Sunday. I don't, and again, that's between you and God. But that becomes then an idol. I realize it's hard. But how you live out your Christian walk is a testimony to your friends and your family just how important your God is to you. 
what are the idols of your life that you have placed before God? The Bible says, Belshazzar, you are condemned for worshiping idols. The last part of verse 23. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. Condemnation number four. You do not glorify God. Belshazzar, you do not glorify the one who holds your very life in your hand. The God who with one snap of the finger, you would drop dead. You do not praise him. You do not glorify him. As your grandfather finally realized he had to do. The question is, do we glorify God in our lives? In everything that we do, do we live it for him? That is the purpose of our life, my friends. That's the subject of the entire series we talked about a few months ago on Ecclesiastes. The purpose of this life that we live is for the glory of God. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, do you glorify God in your life? In your work, in your play, in your family life, do you glorify Him? Do you praise Him? Condemnation number four is, Belshazzar, you did not glorify God. My friends, do you hear these four things in your life? I certainly do. I've been convicted. You know, but you do not act. You disrespect and you do not honor the things of God. You worship idols. You do not glorify God. And for Belshazzar, that is why the writing is on the wall. How about you? Be warned. Is the writing on the wall for you as well? You say, I'm a Christian. But in the heart of hearts, these are the things you are doing. Be careful. Soon, perhaps, the writing on the wall may be on for you. Because God will call your bluff. And he will expose you for who you truly are. Because God will not allow his name to be shamed. God is a jealous God in the sense that God does not share his glory with another. And that's okay. Because that is within his right. Now in verses 24 to verses 31. We will get a glimpse to see how God acts in the life of Belshazzar. And how that translates to us today. Look at verse 24. Then the finger of the hands were sent from him, and this writing was written, and this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. Three Aramaic words, only the first word is repeated twice, four words written out. This is how God comes to his decision of what he is about to do to Belshazzar. This is what he does to call Belshazzar's bluff. You think you're so prideful? You think you can party while the empire I've sent to overthrow yours is hanging outside? Let me tell you. Mene, mene, tekel, uparsin. How does God act? Number one, look at verse 26. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. 
Mene is an Aramaic noun referring to the weight of 50 shekels, a mina. It is from the verb mena to number. God has numbered Belshazzar your days. Basically, he's told Belshazzar, time's up. That's it, time's up. God's patience has worn thin. God said, I have waited long enough. And I will no longer give you, Belshazzar, an opportunity, a chance to repent. King Nebuchadnezzar had seven years. God was very patient with him. And good thing Nebuchadnezzar changed. That was the challenge of Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. King Nebuchadnezzar, repent, change now, so that the days of your prosperity may be lengthened. But now God says to Belshazzar, Mene, Mene, time's up. That's it, time's up. Now, lest you think God only deals like that with evil kings. If you read through the scripture, that is how God deals with us as well. In the Old Testament, that's how he dealt with his people Israel. He was very patient with them. Very patient. Very gracious and merciful. But when his patience wore thin, he told them, time's up. You've had your chance. And he sent in foreign oppressors. In the same way in our Christian life, God is a God that is gracious. God that is God, of, that is God of mercy. There is about a thousand things I've done this week where God could have struck me with lightning and I would have deserved it. But the fact that he doesn't mean he is a gracious God. And he really is a loving God. We know that. But there are times when God's patience runs thin. And he will wait no longer. And he will say into your life, Mene, mene, time's up. That's it. You see, God is a time for everything. That's how God acts, number one. God is a time for everything. Do not wait until the very end. Do not wait until the time that God comes for you and says to you, Mene, mene. Time's up. He calls our life to an account today. He calls our life to attention today. He says, change now before I say to you, time's up. And that's what he said to Belshazzar. Verse 27. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tekel is a noun referring to a shekel. That's why it rhymes. Tekel, shekel. It is from the verb tekal, to weigh. God has weighed the life of King Belshazzar. And the Bible says in verse 27, he founds it wanting. God has judged the life of Belshazzar based on those four condemnation, and he found his life wanting. You see, how God acts, number two, is that God judges. Don't forget that. God will judge, and God judges. This idea has the idea of a scale. To be found wanting means Belshazzar was too light. Now, what does that mean? Was he a thin guy? Well, the balance was used as a normal device to weigh paying options, weigh, weigh the payment. If you ever go to Binondo or, or Ongpin, if you go to the old Chinese medicines, they still weigh with the balance. And the idea is, does the payment balance out what is being sold? 
does the payment meet the standard that was set? If it does not meet the standard, it means it is too light. If it's too light, then it is rejected. We, in the business world, understand this. That's why we have departments and bureaus of, uh, of checks and balances. They, they make sure that the fuel gauges, uh, the, the gas pumps uh, are, are correct. They make sure that the odometers on our, our cars uh, measure out actual kilometers. We want to know the standards. And if we find out that it doesn't measure up to standard, if we're losing out, let's say, on gas or on our car's odometer, then we get angry, right? We, we get mad. In the same way, God looked at the life of Belshazzar, He put it on the balance, and He says, Your life has been found wanting. It's too light. It's too light. And therefore, the Bible says, You are unfit, and you are unacceptable. You see, Belshazzar's moral and spiritual character did not measure up to the standard that God has set. And so he was rejected. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, It is the standard of God by which we are weighed. My friends, we've got to understand this. Our lives are weighed, judged, and measured, not on the standard of men or what the world has set, but on the standard that God has set. You see, a lot of us, including Christians, have this notion that as long as I compare my life with someone else and my life is better than that person, I'm doing pretty good. I'm setting my standard against the life of other people. But that is now how God weighs us. When God said, Tekel, weigh him, he weighs our life against the standard that God has set. And the question we have to ask ourselves is when we are weighed in the balance, is our Christian life found wanting? Is it? And I ask myself that question as well. As Christians, we do not undergo the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium, which is a judgment for all unbelievers of this age in, in the past. But as Christians, we go through a judgment called the Bema Seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. The Bema, where we stand before Christ the judge, and He judges us for the works of our hands. He judges our lives if it is lived for Him. And let me ask you the question, when He judges us, will our life be found wanting? Will our life be found too light? Or does it measure up to the standard that God has set? My friends, understand, God will act and He will judge. May it be that when He says, Tekel, in your life, you will be found having met the standard. Verse 28. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, Parsin is a noun meaning hafamina. It comes from the verb perez, to break in two, to divide. Because if you look at verse 24, it says, Mene, mene, tekel, uparsin. And here, verse 28, Daniel is explaining perez. Well, what happens here is uparsin means and parsin. Parsin is the plural of the singular perez. Daniel changed to have a play on words. He changed the vowel. If you could change the vowels in Perez 
to Paras, you get the word Persian. King Belshazzar, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and it's been given to the Persians. Because of the moral, spiritual degradation of the king and his kingdom, God will terminate your kingdom. That's it. And give it to the Medes and the Persian. How God acts, number three. God will give his work and his blessing to another. God will give his work and his blessing to another. You see, Perez has the notion, the idea, that if you don't live up, then it will be divided and given to someone else. You know, as Christians, we often have this very lackadaisical article, uh, attitude. You know, God, if you don't use me, that's fine. Use someone else. They're, they're better equipped. We must understand that in our lives, if we are disqualified from the work that God calls us to do, then God's work will still continue because He will find someone else to replace you. He will find someone else to bless. He will find someone else to give the privilege of service. Do you remember the story of Barak and Deborah in the Old Testament? God called Barak to lead the children of Israel from under oppression. Barak literally balked. Barak said, not me, God. Call someone else. God said, fine. And he called Deborah. And now they sing the songs of Deborah, not the song of Barak. It is the same way in the New Testament. When he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. That which does not produce fruit, he throws into the fire. It's the idea that as Christians, when we become worthless, when we become useless in the kingdom of God, God will cast us aside in the sense that he will set us aside and he will call someone else. God will never force you to do what you don't want to do. We are not robots. But it is a privilege to be in the service of the one whose work truly matters in this world. It is a privilege and a blessing to be in the service of the one whose work truly matters in this world. But if you don't do it, God will give it to another. He's not going to force you. Will it be said of your life, Perez, that's it. I'm giving what I wanted to give you to someone else. That's what he did in the New Testament parables when he took the one talent and gave it to the ten. Because the one with the one didn't do anything with it. Mene, mene, tekel, perez. Time's up. You are to be judged. You have been found wanting. So the blessings of your kingdom are given to another. May it be in each of our lives that we are never disqualified from the privilege of the work that God gives us. May it never be that we abdicate the responsibility that God wants and desires for us and with that all of the blessings and benefits that He looks for someone else because God will bless that person. And God will raise up that person because God's work depends upon Him. And He just simply gives us the privilege of being a part of that. 
How does this all end? Look at verse 29 to verse 31. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and a, and a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. He was a very short third ruler of that kingdom because verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. God called Belshazzar's bluff. And he says, let's see how prideful you are. And when God called the bluff, he says, you lose. I found out about you and you aren't all that. I'm going to exploit your pride and I'm going to exploit your weakness. Historically, Herodotus tells us that Darius the Mede, who I believe is Cyrus the first, Darius the Mede is, is a term of a respect like Caesar or Pharaoh. It's really Cyrus the first. Cyrus the first told his general, Ugbaru, these are real names, but I'm just giving you a historical context. Cyrus asked Ugbaru to divert the water of the river Euphrates. And so for many months, he built the canal. And he diverted the water of the river Euphrates to a, a dry seabed up north. And on October 12th of 539 BC, they fully diverted the water of the Euphrates. The armies of the Persians walked right into the city unopposed. Because no one builds fortification on the riverbanks. It's a natural fortification. They had walls all surrounding their city. But when there's no sea, there's no water, they walk right in and they conquer it without a fight. And they slay everyone in the city. And they weren't even able to mount a defense. Why? Because all thousand of them were drunk from the big party. God says, let me show you where your pride is. It's not all that. I can take away your kingdom in one night. And that's what he did. Isaiah 47, verse 1 to 5, prophesies this. And the Bible brings in the fulfillment of prophecy. Daniel chapter 2. What will follow the golden head of Babylon will follow with the silver kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And if you think about it, in many ways, God will use the Persians to bless his people. Babylonians, you don't want to do it, that's fine. I'm going to give it to the Persians. And we know the story of Esther. How God used the Persians to send the people of Israel back to their homeland. God will give his work to another if one is so prideful that he cannot be used by God. What about you? When God calls your bluff in how you live your life, will the writing be on the wall? Do you know what you're supposed to do but do not act? Do you disrespect and dishonor the things of God, things that are set aside, consecrated to Him? Do you worship man-made idols that you have set up in your life? And do you not glorify God with your life? May it be in your life that the writing is not on the wall yet. Because one day for all of us, it will be. It will be said of us, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Perez. Time's up. You are to be measured. And as you are measured, will you be found wanting? Will it be that your blessings are given to another? Or will it be because of your faithfulness 
more blessing is given to you. Mene, mene, tekel, peres. As we look and desire to live a life that is holy and pleasing, how do we keep humble? How do we prevent from falling to these four condemnation? One simple thing. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. And that's where we're about to participate in communion in a few minutes. Communion reminds us of the symbolic act of Jesus Christ and his death and shed blood for us. When we look to the cross of Christ, we know that we are called to act. We live our lives for him, not for ourselves. We don't measure ourselves to the standards of this world. We are now purchased with the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the price of our life. And therefore, our life is to be lived for him. When we look to the cross, we realize what a wonderful, amazing act it is that every time we remember the cross, we respect the holy God who sent his own son, he himself, to die for our sin. How can we not but get down on our knees, lie prostrate and say, God, I am unworthy, but thank you for your grace. When we look at the cross and we wonder how can we set up idols in our life because those things have never died for us. Those are man-made objects. Our friends have never died for us. They can be the best of friends, but they do not love us as Christ loves us. If you look to the cross, the idols of your life disappear. And if you look to the cross, how can you not but glorify God? Because this life is not our own. It is His now. And praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the reminder to myself, to all those here this morning, of how we can be so prideful and boastful that we walk around this world thinking we're such great Christians because we come to church, because we said a prayer. And yet, Father, honestly, we need your correcting every day. May we never get to the point of our lives when the writing is the wall. It is said of us, that's it, time's up. But may it be before that time, we course correct, we change. To be the people of God that saved people should be. To live out truthfully and authentically and transparently our life in Christ, because we have nothing to hide. Father, I pray that always our vision would always be set to the cross, because the cross humbles us. Daily, we pick up our crosses, looking to the one who died on the cross, because we desire, I desire, to keep humble and to glorify you with my life. For a time of communion we're about to go into, may you be blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.